have your Bibles, your phone apps, you can go ahead and open them to the book of Ephesians. And just as a heads up, you may want to put a bookmark there because uh, we're going to be there over the next 13 weeks, walking through the book of Ephesians chunk by chunk. And if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Doug, I'm the young adults pastor here, and we are so excited that you've chosen to jump into this journey with us through this book of Ephesians. To set up the book of Ephesians, let me do two things. Number one, I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front, here's the summary of what we're going to talk about over and over and over again over the next 13 weeks. And this is a statement here. It's in your bulletins if you want to make note of it, if you want to take a picture and post to Instagram or Snapchat or whatever, you can do that. Here it is. Ready? Saved by grace to walk this way. That's the summary of the whole book. First three chapters, saved by grace, Ephesians 1, 2, 3. To walk this way, Ephesians 4, 5, 6. Saved by grace, theology, principles, practicals, truth, big ideas. To walk this way, practical application of how this truth impacts our daily lives. For the next 13 weeks, that's all we're going to talk about are those things, chunk by chunk through Ephesians. And today we're going to kick things off by doing a little bit of background stuff and then walking into the first 14 verses of chapter 1 of Paul's letter. And to set it up secondarily, what I want to do is talk to you guys about one of my favorite new Netflix series. Now, let me give this disclaimer because I've gotten in trouble in the past. Um, I'm not suggesting that you watch this show, okay? Because this show could have some content in it that you guys just can't handle, uh, because of your phase of life, or it just wouldn't be good for you. we got to think about the weaker brother or sister. But um, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you the title, and it's a little bit gritty, and it's a little bit dangerous. It's called Stay Here. It's a reality, or it's, a, um, it's a, like an HGTV show about redecorating Airbnbs all across the United States, maybe also into Canada. I mean, just really gripping stuff, you know, full of crime and misdemeanor and... Actually, it's full of none of those things. It's actually a show that probably uh, you or your uh, girlfriend might want to watch together at some point. Um, yeah. But I'm going to show you in just a second. I'm going to show you the trailer here for, um, for Stay Here. Let me talk about why I like this show. I like this show because, number one, I'm a suburban dad, and that's what happens. Guys, you should just know this. Men, if I can talk to you. Uh, you, you like this girl, and you um, ask her on a date, and she says yes. Uh, or around here, our tradition is, you know, a girl tells you, um, if you asked me to coffee, I'd say yes, and so you go, I'm in. And you ask her to coffee, and you go get coffee, that turns into uh, dinner, and that turns into uh, a long-term relationship, that turns into a proposal. You get engaged, right, and then you get married, and then a couple of years go by, you have a couple of kids, you move to the suburbs, and then your entire television consumption habits consist of um, the Disney Channel and HGTV. That's it, Right? Uh, and so Netflix is trying to get on the HGTV market, and they come up with a show called Stay Here. It is an interior designer uh, and a business mogul who are working together to help short-term rental companies uh, update their places so that they can make more money in short-term rentals. That's the whole premise of the show. You've got the British guy who's the entrepreneur, and you've got the kind of beautiful uh, Midwestern kind of interior designer with Scandinavian roots, right, uh, who does all the interior design work, and they're a good team, and they work together. That's the whole premise of the show. Well... What happens inevitably in every episode, and you're going to see this in the trailer, is they come in and they look at the property and they, they, they assess it and they look room by room and then they sit down with the owner and they have the honest conversation. And they always lead by saying the following uh, phrase. They say, listen, you actually have a lot going for you. There's some tremendous stuff. There's some gold in this place. And we can, because of this, we can build upon this. So all we're going to do is give you some additional tips and tricks and have you do a few things to help you improve upon the foundation that you already have available to you. And I want you to watch in this video because in the first, I don't know, 10 to 15 seconds, you're going to hear uh, the guy Peter and the girl Jen say it over and over again. This is gold. This is amazing. You have some great stuff going on here. And then they're going to talk about ways that they can improve. So take a look at this video here. To succeed in the world of short-term rental, you have to offer more than just a comfortable place to sleep. There's nothing like it in the city. Never seen anything like this before in D.C. This is gold. But I don't know that I'm in a firehouse. Well, our real goal is to increase our occupancy. It feels like somebody's spare room, as we say in England, a little bit higgledy-piggledy. Couldn't have said it better. <laughs> we'll show these first time as how to launch a short-term rental. Right now, this place 
is a money pit. I think he's bitten off more than he can chew. I need help big time. You've got the design and the business. And I just can't wait to get my hands on it. Let's do it. Pretty epic, right? We got a lot going on. From how to wow your guests with great design. On budget, but on high style. We are deep into work on our vineyard rental. Wow! To high-tech marketing. Drones. We like drones. I love drones. Unique experiences. I mean, this is a true Brooklyn experience oh, that I'm cool. having right now. We spread love. It's the Brooklyn way. <laughs> this is the quintessential American experience. No pressure. Just make it perfect. Today is the big day. You ready? Yes. We're ready. Ta-da! Oh, my God. Jen hit a home run here. Oh, God. Oh, my God. It's beyond what I would have imagined. We are forever grateful. I would stay here. Me, too. Travel. Design, experience, profit. Stay here. All right. Now, um, I'm just curious, how many of you have never seen that, but now after seeing the preview, you're like, I'm in. I'm going to go binge this tonight. Okay. This is mostly female. Okay, cool. Uh, that's how that works. Hey, seriously. So, it, it, listen, it's, it, all kidding aside, it's not gritty. It's not dangerous. It's not evil. It's none of those things. I was just trying to create some tension because tension gets attention, and now you guys are focused in. But here's the reason I show this, not because I love it, because uh, what I like about it for us, as we're going to jump into Ephesians, is the way they begin. They, they treat every client in this way. They say, listen, your house is gold. Your, your apartment studio is tremendous. It has these architectural features that are amazing. You can really build upon all these positives in your foundation. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to do here in the first chapter of Ephesians. He's going to look at us, and he's going to come in as a general contractor. And he's going to say, if you're in Christ, then you already have these amazing spiritual blessings as a part of your life. These foundational things that are already present, you might even be taking them for granted. But because they're already there, I, Paul, am going to come in and try to encourage you and let you know that no matter where you are today, Jesus wants to fill up and do more and more in this interior renovation project of your soul. He wants to come in and encourage us and build upon that foundation. And today, all I want us to do is to revisit some of these foundational things that are already present in the lives of those of us who follow Jesus. And I want to encourage some of us here today. Uh, I've been talking to some of you guys in the lobby, and you're saying the same thing that I'm saying. It's September, and I'm already tired, right? Like, we just started a new school year, or maybe I'm a teacher and we just kicked off, or maybe I'm just a nurse or medical pro professional, and it's just like the projects are already going, and the people are already just like, oh, or maybe you're working for Lockheed, and you're just like, man, it's like we're having to redesign a spacecraft from scratch, and I'm tired, right? Uh, no matter where you are, what phase of life, my suspicion, my deep suspicion is that many of us are tired here today, and maybe you've grown up in Christianity where people come in and the first thing they do when they sit down for a one-on-one -on -one for coffee or you go meet with a pastor is they go, okay, yeah, I've listened to your story. You're just a sorry person, aren't you, right? And they're just ready to come in and just judge you uh, with a gospel, right? Oh, yeah, well, you're not good enough. And I want to let you know that that type of Christianity could not be further from biblical Christianity. The way the Apostle Paul wants to minister to us. And a good model that maybe some of you in this room want to pick up as you minister to other people is to begin by saying, in Christ, you already have everything you need and we can build upon this. And so I want to encourage you and fill you up in light of that. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to do for us in these first 14 verses. And as we jump into it, I want to invite you guys to pray with me one more time that we would just be teachable before the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we just come to you maybe a little bit tired here this evening and in need of someone to fill us up. And so my prayer is, as we look at these nourishing nuggets of verses that you have, the nuggets of truth, the, the beautiful, poetic, wonderful truths that you have for us in Ephesians 1, that Lord Jesus, would you please just nourish our souls and fill us up. Help us to know all the things we have in Christ already 
before we get going, before our feet hit the floor as our alarm goes off, the things that are foundational that we already have that we can take advantage of every day in our life of following Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So let's stop, stop there and just make sure we understand. Paul, remember, was a terrorist. He was a very bad person, killing Christians, approving of it. And by God's grace, he is converted to Christianity and now is a preacher and a pastor. He's an apostle. He is someone who is planting churches all throughout the Mediterranean uh, for Christianity. The guy who used to persecute Christians is now being persecuted for being a Christian. That's who we're talking about. And he's writing in the early parts of probably 60 to 63 AD, uh, very early in the church's life. Jesus has only been resurrected for about 30 years. The, the church is quite young. There are still no mega churches in Christianity. It's all house churches. Uh, there's uh, beginning to develop maybe about five different regions of Christianity. And Paul is writing to one of these general regions of Christianity in the Greece, modern-day Greece and Turkey area right now. And he mentions that in the next verse. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians, uh, much like Colossians, if you've done any studies on this, Ephesians and Colossians are what are known as circular letters, meaning they were written as letters but not to any particular people. It's almost like an early blog post to those of you who might read this, right? And it was meant to be distributed widely in a region or an area of Christianity, and so, quite easily, Paul could have said this to the Christians living and gathering in Orlando, Florida, right? This is a letter to every Christian, and in other words, it's a letter to us. These words could have been written to us today in 2018 to a group of Christians gathering at 3000 South John Young, John Young Parkway uh, in the F Faith Hall right next to Cafe on the Rock. So this is a letter that Paul, the former terrorist, now converted to Christianity, is writing to us. And so we get to read it as someone who would uh, receive it immediately as something being written very freshly for us. And as you're going to see, Paul's going to talk on these very pertinent themes that I think all of us are going to wrestle with even today. And so he jumps into that. In verse 3, here's what he writes. Blessed be God... Uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved." Friends of the table, I want you guys to note four key features of the Christian life. Four key features of the Christian life in verses 3 through 14 here. And these are the things that you already have. These are the good bones, the architectural features that if you're in Jesus, you already have today. Before your feet ever hit the floor, when you wake up in the morning, these are things that are already present in your life. Four features of the Christian life. And the first one that he just talked about here is that we are adopted in love, we are adopted in love. In verse 5, he says this, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, some of you in the room may have been adopted at some point. I know many of our friends, especially uh, people in our ministry, lots of folks who've been adopted. Maybe you grew up in foster care. Uh, maybe you have some adopted siblings. You're probably on some level familiar with how that process works. But that whole idea of adoption in the civic sense um, gets its titling and its, its caricature from this idea here, that there would be this God who adopts people into his family. More particularly, the idea is um, talked about in terms of Jews, uh, ethnic Jews being the original people of God, and people who are non-Jews being grafted in or being adopted. Uh, that we, we get that idea from the New Testament. But uh, at its basics, uh, at its basis, uh, and at its basic level, uh, adoption is simply this. Someone who may not have been born into a family gets brought into that family and is now made a full member of that family. And all the privileges therein that are applied to that family get applied to that person who's now been adopted. 
Um, it's not like you say, okay, you're going to be adopted, but we're always going to treat you as the adopted person. These people get all the good stuff and like they get dessert with their dinner, but you just get dinner, right? It's not like that. When you get adopted, you get everything, every right, every privilege that's part of a family unit gets applied to you. And spiritually what this means is every right and every privilege that Yahweh, the revealed God, has given to the people of Israel, he now gives to anybody who's part of his family. And so when you believe in Jesus and you say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, and Jesus births a new creation in you, and he puts his Holy Spirit in you, and he saves you, you are now adopted into the family of God. That's why in the New Testament... When you see different names for Christians, uh, at times they're called children of the kingdom or children of the father or children of the, of the king, right? Uh, you're called princes. You're called a royal priesthood. You are uh, someone, if you're in Christ, you are part of God's family. He's the king. You're pre uh, princesses and princes, way better than the Disney sense, right? You are people of God. You are the children of God. You are adopted into his family. You, all the privileges are for you. Now, this is a critically important uh, distinction here. Because I think for many of us um, who maybe are familiar with the foster care system, uh, we've probably experienced, you know, good versions of adoption and bad versions of adoption or good versions of foster and bad versions of foster. Um, typically, the way that works, however, if you're not familiar with social services, is that there can be these um, people with maybe lesser motives who get involved in the adoption process or at least get involved in that kind of system. But typically, if you look at the data, what you find is... Um, that which motivates people to get involved in social services, uh, there's almost a dividing line. Um, people who are in that social services for maybe less than stellar motives, um, maybe they're looking for, for an extra income stream, those people typically get into a foster system because there's a little more money to be made in a foster system than an adoption. And the reason for that is, I can foster some kids for a while, and then they can go away, and I can take a break, and then I can get a new round of kids, and that, that can happen, then they can go away, and I can take a break. But when you adopt somebody, they're yours. You get no break. It's as if you had a kid, right? Um, we have some friends who just went through adoption. Baby came home, and they, they were, it was one of those things where, like, they got a call on a Monday, and they had a kid on a Wednesday, and their whole prep time was, you know, two days, right? And they, you know, so imagine this, Sunday night, they're like, what do you want to watch on Netflix? Well, let's watch Stay Here. Cool, right? So they're watching Stay Here on Netflix, and they're like, this is great. We're just going to binge this show casually at whatever level we want. And Wednesday, it's like, wah, wah, and they're like, oh my goodness, I'm never sleeping again, right? It's like, you're in, you're committed, that's life. This is what happens when you get adopted. This is what happens when you participate in adoption. You can foster kids for money. You can. I don't think that's a great thing to do, but you can. But you adopt kids for love. And when God adopts us, he doesn't do it because it's a benefit to him. He does it because he loves us, because he has a lot of love to give. And so when you're born again and you're born into God's family, he brings you in and he tells you, I am ready to bring this lavish love and just give it to you. You're my kid now and everything that's mine is yours. And I was thinking about this idea of adoption on Twitter the other day. Um, I was watching this kind of news feed. I got to ABC. And, you know, ABC typically has either, like, horrific stories or stories that make you cry because they're so sweet. There's kind of only two categories for ABC. Um, shout out to ABC. I love you. Disney Parent Corporation. Yes. Um, uh, but I, I, I came across this one, and it just, it, it just stopped me in my tracks. It's this, you guys seen this? It's the video of the little girl who is being told by her foster family that they're going to adopt her. Right? I want you to watch this reaction and just, hey, guys, go ahead and lay your man cards down. It's okay to cry at this, okay? <laughs> Table friends, be cool, okay? I'm probably going to get emotional. I'm just warning you. So, but just take a look at this picture of adoption here. Careful, open it up. There we go. I want you to read it. I'm going to be adopted? <laughs>
Yeah. I, I want to give you some perspective on this. When, when you're a kid going through that system, um, and I, I have a lot of friends who've been adopted, especially ones who've been adopted later at four, five, six, um, you get to this point, my friends tell me, where you go, oh man, life is so rough in this orphanage. Um, I hope a family will either foster me or adopt me. And when you get into a foster family, typically the kind of thing you hear over and over again from foster kids is either I like my foster family and I hope they'll just keep me for a little longer or I don't like my foster family, I hope a good family will just come and take me. And every new foster family you come to, there's just a period of adjustment where you're going, I'm not sure if these are evil people who are going to abuse me or if these are kind people who are going to love me. And you just kind of, you just do this relational calculus the whole time. And you're dreaming every day, I hope either my biological family will come home and get me or this adoptive family will come and take care of me. And for very few, this gets to happen, unfortunately. But when it does... It's like the culmination of all of your hopes and dreams coming true at one moment. And that's what you see on the screen there. And you can trace the parallel to what Paul's talking about here with every one of us. You may have never been adopted in a social services sense, but when you became a Christian, you became adopted in a spiritual sense. At some point, you were living in a foster care system that was corrupted, and it's the foster care system of idolatry. You're chasing after these spiritual parents who you're hoping will love you. Maybe that's career, maybe that's money, maybe it's material things, maybe it's yourself, and you're just hoping these idols will take care of you, and these idols don't have eyes, and they don't have ears, and they don't have mouths. They're mute, and they're deaf, and they're blind, and they can't take care of you, and you keep finding yourself in this horrible situation. That's the first part of the gospel. Every one of us was there hoping maybe a new idol will come along and it'll be good enough to just let us get through. And then at some point, Jesus comes in and he says, I'm adopting you. You're now a part of my family and everything that's mine, which is everything, is now yours in me. We are adopted. And not because he wants to make money on us, and not because he wants something from us, not because he wants us to have good works or vote Republican or dress the right way or behave in society. It's not like he's trying to do this social program of behavior modification. He adopts us into his family because he wants to lavish his love that is never ending on every one of us. And guess what? Before you wake up in the morning, Christians, before your feet hit the floor, before your alarm goes off, before you drink coffee and gain consciousness in the world around you, before you put on your glasses and can focus on the weather outside, Jesus already lavishly loves you. Why? Because he adopted you into his family. That's just number one. Number two, whew, here we go. Number two, y'all are like, Doug, you're already at the hot take moment. And there's, there's more to go? Yeah, there's more to go. Paul does not mess around today. Number two, we can read starting in verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The second thing that we have here. Um, is not only are we adopted in love, but we are uh, redeemed by the blood. We have redemption through the blood. We're redeemed by the blood. And what does this mean? What is Paul saying to us? Well, in Christ, what we have here is this blood covering, which is to say, um, you got to remember kind of what it was like in the Old Testament here. And um, typically when I, when I talk about this, I just kind of say, let's do a counterfactual uh, mental exercise here. I want you to imagine that today there is no New Testament, there's no cross. So we live under the Jewish covenant, the way that things operate. And that is anytime you sin, anytime you behave in a sinful way, you have to go kill an animal, cut it in half and walk between it, Right. Uh, you know, it doesn't exactly work this way, but in shorthand, if it's a really big sin, you get a bull, right? If it's a little sin, you get a dove. You're like, oh, sorry, when doves cry. There we go, right? And you walk through. Uh, that's how that works. 
You didn't know that Prince song was about sin and the atonement, did you? Well, now you know. It actually wasn't about that, but I just, anyway, move along, Doug. So I think you guys see the point. So just imagine this. I just want you to imagine. Maybe you have some friends, guys or girls, and you're just like really into porn, right? And it's late at night. Did I just talk about porn after adoption? Yes, I did. We're, we're going to be, listen, if it's your first time, we're real here at the table. We talk about real things. Okay, so it's not you, but you have a friend who's into porn, right? And again, this is guys, this is girls, both way. And it's late at night, but you're in the Old Testament covenant, okay? And you look at porn, you're on the tablet, you're on the computer, you're like, oh, I just sinned. Oh, okay, so you're walking through the shame and you're dealing with this and you realize, man, I, I got to do something about this. Just, I feel icky. I know this was the wrong thing to do. It didn't actually make me feel better. It's like eating McDonald's at two in the morning. Like I thought it was good in the moment, but now I'm having second chances as I go to the bathroom, right? Uh, or I'm having second thoughts, not second chances. There's no second chances here, right? Um, and you just feel spiritually icky. Well, here's what you got to do. You're like, ugh. And you get in the car and you drive to Kissimmee or Ocala or Bushnell, Florida, wherever they have farm animals. And you drive up to the farmer and you ring the doorbell and he opens the door. I imagine he has overalls, like a little hat on. And he just looks at you. It's two in the morning. And you're like, sir, I'm really sorry, but uh, I'm going to need a bull. And he's like, oh, porn? And you're like, yes, sir, right? <laughs> he's like, oh, well, we got to go over here to my barn, the porn bull barn over here, uh, where I keep all the bulls for the porn that goes on. And you got to drive with a farmer who's a little disgruntled at two in the morning to this one barn. And it actually says, like, livery, bulls for porn. And you walk in and you're like, what is going on? And he gets this one bull out and he gets the chainsaw and he straps the bull down. He's like, do you want to cut it or me? And you're like, no, sir, this is, it's two in the morning. You should obviously be cutting this thing. So he gets the chainsaw and he cuts the bull in half and you got to walk in between. And you're like, okay, cool. It's the only point where you go, okay, finally this blood is covering over. It's, it's washing away just this sin, sinful behavior that I just committed. And you drive back to your house and imagine you get back, you're feeling really down on yourself and you look at porn again. It's now four in the morning. Like, okay, which porn bull barn is closer? You get on Google Maps and you're doing, you're like, okay, the one in Kissimmee is 12 miles away, but the one in Altamont Springs is 10 miles away. Okay, I'm going to go to that one. Is it still open? You're checking the Google reviews and Yelp. You're like, okay, that's good. Okay, right. Can you imagine that process? This is obviously ludicrous, right? No one would ever do, well, maybe this would happen. I don't know. But, but this is what would happen in the Old Testament. You sin, you behave badly you know it's wrong you've got all this guilt in your life you've got to go find a priest to cut an animal in half you've got to walk in between it do the hokey pokey turn yourself around that's what it's all about right <laughs> what's Paul saying he's saying this system here doesn't work for a variety of reasons number one it doesn't modify the behavior because as bad as it is walking between an animal carcass people still behave sinfully we're dealing with the behavior we're not dealing with the root problem, which is capital sin still reigns over us. As I'm thinking about sinning, there's nothing checking that worldview root at the core of our soul. We're still chasing after our idols. And so God, in his mercy, said, we got to cut the problem off at its head here. The problem is capital S sin. It's not lowercase s sinful behavior. And so when Jesus went to the cross and died after living a perfect life and his blood was shed, he is now the perfect atoning sacrifice that doesn't get rid of sinful behavior S, although it does. It gets rid of capital S sin and undermines it. So now, those of us who are in Christ, when we're thinking about sinning, this new player is involved, which is the Holy Spirit going, shouldn't do that. And you're like, oh, whoa, what was that? I'm a Holy Spirit. Let's just, let's just stay away from the porn barn today. If we could just do that, okay? Enough bulls have spared their life. Sarah McLaughlin is singing the song for the commercial. Please, the ASPCA is getting involved. Stop sinning. And you're like, thank you, Holy Spirit. I'm definitely closing my laptop right now, right? Jesus, when he redeems us by his blood, listen, he is eradicating the possibility of sin at its core level. He is removing the power that sin has over us. So this is what it means. Before your feet hit the ground in the morning, before you drink your cup of coffee and put on your glasses, Jesus is already He's already cut out the power that sin has over you. You are not predestined to sin tomorrow. You're not. You used to be predestined to sin before you had Christ. Now that you have Christ, you're, not pre you're no longer predestined to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin and fear. 
You're a child of God who is empowered by God and who now has the Holy Spirit to come and tell you, don't do that. Internally, to move you towards Christ-likeness. We are redeemed by the blood. That's number two. Here's number three. Number three starts in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Third thing that we have here is that we have been provided an inheritance. We have been provided an inheritance. Uh, Anytime you think about the word inheritance, you you understand that this typically means like you've come into some money, right? Um, Natalie and I recently had a, a relative pass away who... Um, that we just got this call like, hey, you're going to get a check in the mail because this relative kind of left you this inheritance. And it wasn't much. It wasn't like, like I'm done and I'm moving to like Fiji, right? It's not that. But, um, you know, it came in. We had to have the conversation. Okay, we have this money coming in. What are we going to do? You know, which missionaries are we going to support? Like, how are we going to save it? it? It was enough to where we had to think, we've had to think this through. Well, um, anytime anyone gets an inheritance, at some point, especially if it's large enough, especially if it comes from your father, you're like, ooh, I'm set, right? Uh, you get the idea that, like, I, I may not have to work anymore. I mean, I might just be able to choose the job that I want, not the job that I need to cover all my costs of student loan debt, right? You're like, man, praise Jesus, I, I have this. And what Paul's telling us is this. Again, before you wake up and go to work in the morning, before your feet ever hit the ground, in Christ, in him, we have been given an inheritance. In other words, we're taken care of. You're set for life. If you have Jesus, you're set. Your Father's going to take care of you. The needs that are really needs and not just wants masking themselves as needs, those kind of things, your Father is going to take care of. Why? Because he controls the ability to make wealth. He has everything that anyone could possibly need, and he is now your Father. And his, your father takes care of his children. He is a good, good father who gives good, good gifts to his good, good children, right? And his bad, bad children. Why? Because he loves them lavishly. And so everything you're going to need in life, you have in Christ. So not only are you adopted and you have full rights, and not only is sin eradicated uh, at the core root, you're given everything you need in life before you wake up in the morning. And finally, you have this, verse 13. In him also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Finally, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, or sealed by the Spirit. Now, what does this mean? You can imagine the idea of being sealed up. Maybe you watch a show where a virus breaks out, and they're like, oh, we got to protect these people. And they put them in a little bubble, and they go, and they seal them up so that you're protected from all that stuff. Well, this is basically what you're saying. This salvation that Jesus has given you, this adoption, it's not something you could possibly lose because you behave badly. Remember, sin has been dealt with. It's not something that somehow if you just kind of, you know, don't quote enough Hail Marys or don't go to church enough or don't do, like, it somehow slips away and you wake up tomorrow morning and God's like, sorry, foster kid, bye, you're done, right? That doesn't happen. Listen, you're sealed up. Or maybe a better way of thinking about it, now, I know it might be stretching here because we're in Florida and it never gets cold here, right? Like the coldest it gets in Florida is 65 and that's when people are like, oh, it's hoodie weather. Oh, man, 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, got to get that, the scarf and the PSL. Let's go, right? Um, I used to live in Chicago, and it would be uh, cold. Shout out to Jill, okay? Chicago gets like negative 15, okay? Uh, Tristan, you know this. You're from Chicago. Wind comes off the Michigan, hits you going downtown. You're just like, oh, like you're, I don't know if you guys have ever been this. It gets so cold in Chicago that at some time when you walk outside and you open your eyes, it gets sticky because the saliva or the mucus in your eyes or the wetness in your eyes, it's starting to freeze, opening your eyes. That's cold, right? You guys get the picture here, right? Um, So it would be cold in our apartment when we lived in Chicago. And so Natalie would wake up, there'd be space heaters, and she would go, oh man, I'm so cold. So she'd make some coffee, and then she'd go to the couch, and she'd sit in this couch. We had a picture window. She could look outside and see it. And she would grab this blanket, like her favorite blanket, and she'd like wrap herself like a cocoon. right? And just descend into the blanket where it just, you know, it's just her eyes are showing. And the only time, I mean, this is before Snuggies. So, I mean, Snuggies were a game changer, but you know, she's here and occasionally she would have to like, like inch out to get the coffee. And then she would inch back in and just, right? 
And I would, you know, I would always look at this and go, like, why are you in this blanket? And she, she would say, it is so secure in this blanket. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's cold outside. You're in a blanket. You're, this is the perfect cocoon of existence right here. If I could just have, like, Morgan Freeman read me a book right now, it would just be the perfect day, right? Um, that wouldn't be creepy at all. Anyway, um, hey. This idea of a blanket wrapped around you in the cold, this is what is being talked about here. In Christ, you are wrapped up in a blanket of the Holy Spirit, securing your salvation, securing your place as a child of God. It's never in doubt. You're never going to lose it. It's never going to go away. And guess what? That security is yours when you wake up, before you wake up tomorrow. It's already there if you're in Christ. We are adopted in love. We're redeemed by the blood. Uh, we have obtained uh, or received, uh, been provided an inheritance, and we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does all of this mean? Why does all this matter? Why is this practical? And furthermore, why does God do all this? Well, Paul tells us in verse 9 and 10, he says this, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. So he's telling us this is his purpose in doing all of these things. The purpose of his will, um, oops, I'm sorry, uh, verse 10, uh, uh, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And I would recommend that verse to you guys as something to memorize this week, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the purpose of why God does these things for us in Christ. Now, what does it mean that God's going to unite all things? Like, why is that a, per, like, why is that a benefit of me? I, I don't, I mean, maybe you understand this intuitively. I read that and I'm like, okay, God's going to bring unity with all of this. Okay, what does this mean? It just seems like this ambivalent value out there that you're just like, okay, I don't, ambiguous. I don't know what this means. Well, let me uh, maybe translate it for you this way. The reason that God adopts us and redeems us and seals us with the Holy Spirit and gives us an inheritance, the reason he does that in Christians is because, yes, he wants to unite all Christians together and bring harmony, commun uh, harmony in a communal sense. But more importantly, or maybe more pressingly to Paul's letter, he wants to bring unity within us. Or maybe the word is, he wants to bring an integrated life to our unintegrated life. Have you guys noticed this, that when you think about your life, um, because of the way we live in modernity and modern society, that a lot of us would describe that our lives are, are deeply riddled by anxiety. Have you guys noticed that? Maybe not you, but maybe your friends. They're just, we're anxious people. We're on ADD medication. We're on anxiety medication. We're just generally anxious when we wake up. Maybe they describe you growing up as um, like wiry or high strung or something like that. Uh, you go into work and your boss says, you know, hey, Johnson, let me see you in the office. And you're like, oh my goodness, what did I do? And you're like go, quickly scrolling through all the things, the projects you're supposed to get done. And you're like, did I not do them fast enough, right? And you just always think the worst of every possible situation. Like you're worried that the bottom's gonna fall out at any given moment. You find yourself just as an anxious person, right? What, what Jesus is saying here is the reason I save you and the reason I adopt you, the reason God brings us into his family uh, is because he wants to bring unity or integration or peace to this anxious life. Let me give you maybe a, a better illustration here. I want you to imagine that your life is a party. Yeah, it's a Saturday night. It's late. Um, you know, you got a 90s soundtrack going on. People formed Soul Train and now you're dancing. Um, you know, it's a party. Kind of like the party we threw this weekend at the Labor Day getaway. Um, thank you for that one loan like, yeah! Yeah! <laughs> There was one person who was really happy. The rest were like, eh, it was, it was okay. Um, so I want you to imagine your life is a party. And I want you to imagine what you've invited to this party are your work friends and your church friends and your school friends, either college or high school, uh, and the friends from your neighborhood, maybe your apartment complex. And you've invited them all to this party, right? And you guys have been to parties like this where you invite friends from the different pockets of your life. Uh, and you know how that usually goes. They're at your party and they're all clumped up in their little cliques, and they're not intermingling. So what do you end up doing at a party like this? 
You walk up to your church friends and you're like, hey, you guys okay, whatever, okay, cool. And then you go back to the dip table and you get more Tostitos and salsa and you're like, ooh, okay. And then you walk over to your work friends, you're like, cool, yeah, collating faxes and spreadsheets and logistics and synergy. And they're like, yeah. And then you leave and you go back to the dip and then you go over to your neighborhood friends, you're like, yeah, man, that one guy who drives that car who always drives over the speed bumps, that guy's weird, right? Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, you're here. Oh, my bad, dude, right? And then you leave that part and you're like over here and then you go back to your high school friends and you're like, yeah, man, that was really cool. Remember when we won state? Cool, awesome, go sports teams. Yeah, kick a touch point, all right, cool. And right, and you just find yourself managing those pockets of people until they leave your house. And anyone who's ever been to a party like this, who's been a host of it, knows this. Managing that kind of thing is tiring because none of these people interact and it's forced. And you're like, man, there are just not enough Snoop Dogg tracks to get through this, right? Like, oh, man, I went through all of his 94 catalog and now I'm on the 95. I might have to go to Biggie soon. Like, oh, my goodness, this party, right? It's, you, anybody ever had a party like that in real life where you're just like, ugh? It's tiring, right? Well, this is a metaphor for how many of us live our lives uh, in the 21st century, we have been told to compartmentalize the way we do things. You can be a Christian on Sundays and maybe on Tuesday nights, but you can't integrate that into work. At work, you have to be work you. And then at church, you're church you. And then at home, you're home you. When you go back to see your college or high school friends, your college or high school you. And these things don't integrate because you've got to be compartmentalized. You've got to be like a waffle in your life. And anyone who's ever managed this knows that is uh, tense. It's hard to manage all that. You've got these parts of you and they're not talking together and they're all discombobulated and you just find yourself having to manage this stuff and then when you don't want to manage this stuff anymore, you just sit on the couch and you watch Netflix and you're just like, I'm so tired. I wish there was a better way in life. What Jesus is saying is that the reason he saves you and the reason he adopts you in his family and gives you an inheritance and the reason he seals you with the Holy Spirit is because he wants to bring unity to your life. He wants to bring all of these different parts of you together in this integrated life. And just to give you kind of a, a practical example of that, I want to tell you about my friend Jay, and this picture is going to come on the screen here. This is Jay, and because y'all are smart and you can observe and interpret, you can probably make some assumptions about Jay. Jay and I went to Baylor University together, Sikkim Bears, and... Um, uh, Jay was a very interesting dude. He's from Colorado. Um, he didn't really bathe much. Um, he definitely had dreadlocks in his hair by sophomore year. Uh, he was on the cross-country team, so you know he's already a little bit crazy, right? Um, but Jay just had this quirk about him. He just did not want to wear shoes, ever. So he just didn't wear shoes. Uh, and he would go into restaurants, and they would say, sorry, sir, no shoes, no service. And he would pull out these lambskin uh, I, they're like sandals that he made with like rubber bands and lambskin. And he would put them on and he would be like, does this count? And people would be like, yes, that's fine. And then he would definitely go to a buffet, right? It was just so weird, right? <laughs> Jay was just this kind of quirky dude, marched to the beat of his own drum. Um, <laughs> Jay didn't believe that the given accommodations of rental units uh, applied to him. Like, he'd be like, I don't need that much space. Just a bottom bunk, I don't need that much space. I'm not going to pay for a bottom bunk. So he convinced his friends who owned a house, he convinced his friends to let, them, uh, let him live in their house. And their house had like a giant entryway where it was like 20 foot tall in the entryway and then all the rooms were on the sides. And so he was like, hey, why don't you let me build a loft in your entryway and I'll crawl up there. And then he affixed a, an Eno hammock uh, up at the top of the ceiling, like 12 feet in the air. That, his bottom would be like 12 feet in the air. And he would crawl up this little makeshift little stand, crawl into his hammock, and that's where he slept. And he stored all of his clothing in his hammock. So, because he only had like two shirts and like two pair of pants or whatever. And he just lived a really, really uh, minimalistic life. Jay was a quirky dude. But here's the thing about Jay. Jay was friends with everybody. Because everybody saw him and was like, that dude's not going to adjust anything about his life. So if we're going to be friends with him, we have to adjust to him. Like that's just, they just understood that based on the BO that preceded him and uh, everything that went on. So no joke, we would go to parties. I would go to parties with Jay and there would be like 
uh, athletes there and like the stoner crowd and the, uh, you know, like the preppy sorority and fraternity crowd and then like the math and computer science nerds who I love. They're my favorite. And um, we would walk in and I would, I, again, I would be like, oh, no, I got to manage all these things. Like when I walk over to the football and, you know, jocks, I'd be like, oh, hey, dudes, like y'all drinking beer. Cool. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I played football in, uh, in fifth grade. It was pretty cool, right? Like, I just, like, automatically my chest stuck out, and I was like, yeah, what's up, right? Like, I talked like this. So, granted, looking back, some of our football players were, like, 5'8 to Kappa, and they were like, what is going on with this guy? Like, I think he has a closed head injury. Anyway, um, and then I would walk over to, like, computer science guys. I'm like, hey, cool. Hey, guys, what's up? Cool, Bill Gates. Like, computers, awesome. And that was it. I was out at that point. Uh, and then, you know, like, the stoner crowd, I kind of just didn't go near it because I'm a Christian. Anyway, um, <laughs> And then, you know, we had the other people there. And I remember I, I, I would walk into these parties and just think, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to manage all these conversations. I'm going to have to put on these different hats. And Jay would just be like, no, bro, come with me. And he would just saunter over and hang out. The football guys would be laughing. And then pretty soon he's with the stoners. And then pretty soon he's with the computer science guys and, all, and the church people and the non-church people. And Jay would just be like, bro, what, what if we just have, like, let's just throw in some music. And everyone was like, yeah, like all at the same time. And Jay would put on some really weird, like, EDM music. And everybody would just be like, and like, I'm like, what happened? And everyone's high-fiving. The football guys are hanging out with the stoners and the computer science guys are hanging out, right? And he's like, oh my goodness. It was just, it was, it was all one. And then when we would leave, everyone would just be like, arms wrapped around each other going, bro, that was the best party. Jay, we're hanging out next week. And if you were with Jay, everyone just kind of came together around him, right? And Jay did not manage anything. He just enjoyed his life. And what Jesus wants to say to us, or what Paul wants to say to us about Jesus in Ephesians 1 is this. The reason that God adopts us and the reason that he gives us uh, an inheritance and the reason he redeems us by the blood of Christ and the reason that he seals us in the Holy Spirit, his purpose in that is that we may have unity internally that we'd only wear one hat in our life, and that's the hat of Christ. And no matter whether we're going to work or going to school or going to church, we would become comfortable being the same person centered in Christ, adopted by Jesus in everything that we do, every day of the week, every week of the year, all the time, that we would live the integrated life, that we would live the life of peace. And so with that in mind, I want to give you these, this kind of um, axiom or principled statement here. And you maybe want to write it down. And here's what it says. It's going to be on your screen here. God doesn't save us. He didn't save me. He didn't save you to manage your life. God saved you so that you could enjoy your life. God doesn't save us so that we can be life managers where we're like, okay, over here and over there and over this and over there. And thank you, Jesus, for saving me, but I'm going to compartmentalize that to one part of my life. No, God adopted us into his family so that we could learn to live the way that Jesus lives and then live that in every area of our life so that when we're doing that, when we're achieving that, as we're increasingly organizing our life around the way of Jesus, around uh, his celebration of the Father, around his community with other disciples, around the compassion he gives to everybody and practices, as we're trying to live in that kingdom dynamic, as we live it, we would live it in every area that we go. And when believers live centered in their adoption and who Jesus is, everywhere they go, guess what? Everywhere they go gets unified and starts to look a little bit the same. And when that happens, you see the kingdom of God start to come on earth. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's the way God set it up. And so here's where I want to take us tonight as the band's on stage and about to respond. I want to invite you to pray, and then we're going to sing a song together. And here's what I want to invite you to spend some time praying about and meditating about right now. So wherever you are, I just want to invite you to just assume a posture of thoughtfulness and contemplation and meditation. Number one, if you're in the room here today and you're hearing all this and you're like, that sounds great, I love the adoption story, but I'm not in Christ. If you're not in Christ here today, may I invite you to consider believing in Jesus. And maybe you're not ready today, and that's okay. But could you consider taking at least a half a step towards Jesus? And if you're someone who's ready to believe in Jesus, maybe you just, where you are, you want to say this, Jesus, 
I don't know what this prayer thing is, but whatever it is, I want to invite you into my life to do all those things that Paul talked about. Would you save me? Would you adopt me? Would you redeem me? Would you give me an inheritance? Would you seal me by the Holy Spirit? Maybe you're someone who's been following Jesus, but you've been managing your Christian life for far too long. And today you just want to surrender that. Maybe God has called you to realize the vision of the Christian life that's one that's not managing, it's enjoying life. And so maybe you just want to pray something like this, a prayer of surrender. Jesus, I surrender to whatever it is you want me to do. And I give up the idea of managing my life in favor of the life of enjoyment. So would you teach me how to take the first step towards that life? Maybe you're someone who's here today and you're just flat tired and you needed Paul to fill up your soul with the truth of what Jesus has already done for you. So if that's you here today, I just wanna pray for you right now. Jesus, would you give us rest? And would you renew our weary spirits? And would you bring community around us to just help us get to where we need to be? And would you restore us to the place that you need us to be in Orlando so that we can enjoy you most? And for the rest of you in this room, no matter where you are, I just want to pray this prayer over you. Jesus, make us into the kind of people who routinely and regularly live in your kingdom dynamic in the life of unity. Not because we have some grand mission of changing Orlando, but because we just want to enjoy our lives. Help us to know how to do that naturally. And help us to know when to listen to our bodies and take a break. And help us to know when to listen to our friends and steer away from that thing we're pursuing. And help us to hear from the Holy Spirit to keep us from moving towards that behavior of sin. And do more in us than we can imagine or expect or even plan. Do something amazing. And would you do that today and tomorrow and forever? And it's in your name that we pray.